Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM, and on Saga 960 AM in the greater Peel region, Toronto, Ontario. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, coming to you from the home studio, getting over that cold, aren't we all? It's that season. Tis the season. And I'm joined on the other side of the ocean by my partner in crime, co-host, and uh, all-around fun fella, David Clement. David, how goes it? Oh, it's good. It's good. No complaints. Um, it's starting to feel like it's officially fall here. Um, vaccine passports are are rolled out for restaurants and gyms, so there's lots to talk about there. And uh, I'm going to be getting on my first flight in over 18 months um, very shortly. So exciting times, exciting times. Yeah, the the Vax Pass is a big deal. I'm seeing a lot of uh, interesting actions and uh, protests and other people who are willingly accepting. But for the travel, yeah, man, welcome back to the travel game. Yeah, uh, it's good. I mean, it's quite a process in terms of PCR tests, and uh, it's pretty intense. Um, and what's weird for me is... For the most part, most of like the private businesses, um, they've gotten rid of the travel question and the screening. Um, so they don't ask you if you've left the country in the last 10 days or so. But for things like the doctor's office, sometimes they do. And it kind of just seems silly to me when I think about it. Because, I mean, if you're flying somewhere, so uh, proof of vaccination, uh Negative PCR test three days before you leave. Negative PCR test three days before you come home. A test at the airport. Like, that's pretty, pretty thorough. Um, So I hope that some of those restrictions no longer exist or they just stop asking that question just because it seems like overkill. Oh, yeah. It's gone a a bit far in that aspect. Um, One thing that I've definitely noticed is that the uh, whole testing regime is very difficult depending on where you live and where you are. And getting these tests and sometimes the cost of the tests are pretty high. I mean, how many tests have you had overall, actually? Uh, so this will actually be my first PCR test. <laughs> how is that possible that you're a year and a half into this? Well, that's your first one. they haven't been generally like you've... So there were a lot of st- sticky rules for a long time where it was like, why are you requesting the test? And then it was, they w- it would be like, okay, well, I have symptoms. Um, and then for a long time, if you didn't have symptoms, they weren't going to do the tests. And then they've just started opening it up uh, to um, for travel. So there are some private options there and they're quite expensive. Um, but the rapid tests are still not, as readily available as they should be. I mean, I know you and I have, I have talked about this before. I I think I saw an example from some, maybe I want to say Denmark, and they were like two bucks a test. And you could just pick them up at your local pharmacy or drugstore or supermarket. And it's like, that would be a really nice way to very quickly know, oh, okay, we're good. Like, I can continue on with my day. Or, I mean, as you've experienced, and a lot of parents uh, that I know have experienced. I mean, the kids go to daycare or to school. 
they're going to get sick. They're going to get a cold. Like, that's just the way the world works. And so just to be able to quickly be like, okay, well, they have a runny nose and a fever, but it's not COVID. Uh, so Yeah, we've had uh, tests here have been fairly accessible, um, somewhat cheap. I mean, they were actually cheap for the entire population up until recently. Uh, I had to, because I'm not a citizen and all of this, uh, I had to pay, but it was only about 25 bucks a pop. And in the beginning, I needed to have it in order to go get my haircut. Uh, why I delayed getting a haircut. <laughs> you had to have the test to go to the gym. You had the, needed that if you want to go to the restaurant. Uh, once the, the vaxes were uh, more distributed, then they did allow those vax passes to be used. But I will have to do the test again very soon, David. Oh. A lot of them. Yes. Uh, so Big we news. are expecting baby number two. And in order to access the hospital as a visitor, um, even though I do have my Vax Pass, I still need to provide a fresh PCR test uh, that is within the last 24 hours. Oh. Do they even and, give you the results that quickly? Uh, there, there are some, yes. Okay. Uh, some I can get them within three or four hours. Oh, that's good. Okay. Um, but basically, I need to have it. And of course, you never know when that moment is going to come. So I will essentially be perpetually tested every day uh, for the next probably two weeks, which will be a lot of fun for my nose. Uh, sometimes they do offer the mouth, like they just go down your throat. They don't have to go through the nose, which is cool. Uh, but there is also this gurgle test, which is kind of interesting. It's been in use here. It's, uh, it's kind of like swishing, if you ever had to do that in school. No. It's like this chemical. It's like this chemical that, uh, at least at least it was like this in the U.S., this chemical, normally a pink fluid, that once a month all the kids had to swish in their mouth, just <laughs> um, essentially it was fluoride, basically. Oh, it was a yeah. way to make sure we didn't have cavities and bacteria and all this kind of stuff. Got it. Yeah. So you do that as well, and you spit into the tube, uh, but you can pick up the tube at any pharmacy or grocery store, and then you can also drop it off at the grocery store. Oh, that's and that's a little less a little less invasive. Yes, yes. I haven't done it yet, but uh, I'll, I'll head on over to the pharmacy after nice. this probably and go pick up a couple. And we can also buy the at-home tests for about 10 bucks a pop as well. Nice. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that gives you some peace of mind right off the bat. That's pretty good. And this is what they did not have, obviously, in the U.S. The FDA was very, very slow in approving any of these tests. It, it took, like, I think it was just until this year. Well, that it, they actually endorse one finally. In Canada, the health minister Patty Haidu said that she didn't. Uh, she said something along the lines of she doesn't trust people to be able to do the at-home tests. And it's like, what? Come on, <laughs> we're not idiots. Oh, uh, yet again, another example of the government treating people like morons. Yeah, yeah. Funny, funny question for you. Have you heard about the COVID dogs? I have not, but likely this will create much more concern than for humans, whatever you're, wherever you're going with this. So the COVID dogs are like drug-sniffing dogs, but they can, they can sniff out people who have COVID. And apparently they're really effective. I, I don't know where they were using them. I think it was at an airport somewhere. Um, oh, it wasn't wow. here. But yeah, the, the dogs are able to like come up and they sniff, and then if they sit... That means that, like, you got to stop, and they're like, oh, you might have COVID. And apparently, like, they're pretty accurate. Um, I don't know how you train a dog to sniff for that, but interesting use. Yeah, a little bit, 
It's a little bit of mission creep, right? <laughs> like, hey, man, I was hired to look for drugs and bombs, and now you got me sniffing up sick people. <laughs> woof, woof, what's this about? Give me my treat. <laughs> yes, I'm a good boy. <laughs> yeah, and definitely the the innovations that we've seen, and there have been a lot sort of in the private sector. I know that in the NBA, they developed a fairly uh, quick and reactive test uh, that they've been using for a while. We haven't seen that, and it's, you know, there, there are a couple of stories that have been written about how the different federal agencies have blocked many of these tests, which some people were able to put together in, like, March and April of 2020, but they were not actually able to sell them to people. Yeah. Um... Like, how much could we have avoided had those things been able to go to market and you could have picked it up at CVS or Shoppers Drug Mart or whatever? Well, I remember saying this to you early, early on, in the two weeks to flatten the curve. Uh, it's China, that's what time, you said. No, no, no. The two weeks to flatten the curve moment where it's like, well, what if you just mailed everybody a rapid test and everybody did their test? If it came back inconclusive or positive, you stay at home. Uh, that would probably put a huge dent in the continued spread. But, of course, we couldn't do that. Um I don't know why not, because it certainly would have been feasible. Yeah, there would have been some logistical issues, but... Uh, we definitely did that here in Austria. It wasn't mailed to you, but everybody could go to any pharmacy and get a free test. Okay. It was well, covered that way. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <sighs> what is going on? <laughs> I know. Uh, I've got a story here, David, that relates to this. and has to do a little bit... We've talked about uh, tech, tech policy, a little bit about online censorship. Um, you know, there's... a. Uh, article here about YouTube, and apparently YouTube is now actively blocking and banning all content that questions vaccines or vaccine efficiencies, and banning, um, just with a general broad brush, uh, any of the activists who are either anti-vaccine or anti-vax pass. And we're seeing that there's been a lot of pressure put on these platforms and YouTube is either responding to that because they'll they'll probably be dragged before some committee at some point, or they're just preemptively doing so. But either way, I see this as pretty troubling for a number of reasons. There's a lot of stuff that we learned early on that wasn't true in the pandemic. There's a lot of stuff that we're still questioning. Mentioning the lab leak hypothesis early on also got you banned. Which and, is which is know, now pretty much true. <laughs> yeah, and it's this kind of stuff to where, and I don't blame the tech companies. This is the kind of thing that, this is, I, I guess, the unique take. I don't blame them because they're just responding to the political environment and what's asked of them. Well, yeah, and uh, and in some senses, they're probably responding. I know that this is true in Canada, so there's been a lot of talk about whether we want to follow the Australian model for regulation for this type of stuff uh, because Australia has determined that um, these these news outlets and their pages, let's say on Facebook, are liable for what's co- what the comments are. Um, and so CNN is basically now restricting as- access in Australia. Uh, or, yeah, in Australia because, I mean, that you one, that's stupid, and two, it's just not possible to uh, to logistically manage the comment section on something to, so that you're ensuring you're not going to get sued because someone says something silly or false or hateful or whatever. Um, 
And I mean, the interesting thing here in terms of Canada is that our heritage minister, who is, uh, I could only describe him in words that are not suitable for the radio. Um, they did like a survey of Canadians and said like, we want to combat fake news. Like, how should we do it? And I think a majority of Canadians said, hey, we have no issues. Like, we're very well suited to spot fake news. Like, we know it when we see it, which highlights the, the absurdity of trying to really go after all of this. And and don't get me wrong, most of it is fake news. Uh, most of it is, um, some of it is pretty nefarious. Uh, but it it is a... It is a worrying issue if the government's trying to strong-arm private tech companies to ensure that the narrative, even if it's true, the narrative that um, that they want is is what's what's widely available. I think that's a that's a big a big red red flag for me. Yeah, and and all we always see with these situations is that once these content creators or producers are banned or kicked off of platforms. Well, they just migrate to other platforms, um, you know, where information runs even more rampant and people are on all these alternative websites and people will find the information if they want. Oh, yeah. yeah. And particularly with particularly with YouTube and with Facebook, I mean, they make mistakes. They make a lot of mistakes. And you can you can probably analyze that and who are the people who are on the moderation teams and where are they based and how they vote. That's very easy to do. But really, at the end of this, we just have to say, look, this is just not a good policy. And the more that we invite government on either side to say ban more or ban less, you're inviting the government regardless. And the pendulum is going to swing the other way. Oh, 100%. And it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good, no matter what. And I, I, that's what I find. I wish there was more leadership there, more of a nuanced take. Uh, instead, everyone assumes that these, you know, platforms are public property. No, I and know we need the government to weigh in. I know we got to go to break soon, but I'll re-up one of my old comments: is pick a politician you don't like. So, for Americans, if you're Democrat or or you just weren't particularly fond of Trump, whenever the government wants to do something, you should say, "Okay, I think that the Trump administration should regulate what is on the internet." Uh, and the same goes for conservatives. I think that there you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be be right back. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region and the Big Talker FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Yael. Uh, I, I have a question for you, and we can save our answers for a later date. Hit me. When do you think that we the pandemic will be officially over? And when I say over, I mean in the sense of you are no longer, let's say, required to wear a mask on a plane or going to a grocery store or wherever the local restrictions are whatever the local restrictions can i can we fine-tune that to say when the world health organization declares it is over Ooh, sure yeah 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 that up the stakes a bit yeah i like that okay so you want me to keep my answer yeah i want want you to say it and then we're going to lock it in and then we'll see uh if our predictions are optimistic pessimistic okay um so we've heard from various 
uh, of the vaccine manufacturer CEOs. Uh, I think Moderna said at least until 2022. I'm going to say modestly, modestly, December 2022. That's, yeah, that's depressing. That's depressing. I'm going to go, um, I'll, I'll, I'll do my prices right strategy here and go, uh, you say December 2022, I will say November 2022. Okay, whatever. <laughs> the reason I say that, and it has less to do with, obviously, the virus, the disease, how much it spreads, all of that, and more to do with, not to be frank here, what it allows in terms of what regulators and politicians can pass and how long they can continue a crisis momentum. And the same applies to the World Health Organization. The same applies to the U.S. government, the Canadian government, European governments, as long as they have this, people do not bat an eye when all of a sudden we have trillion-dollar bills that are just kind of thrown up there. Uh, you have a little bit of the procedures that are argued over, but nobody, nobody kind of balks at the huge amount, and we just uh, continue on our day. Well, yeah, I mean, just look at the debt ceiling conversation right now in the U.S., um, it's like, that's one instance where you have to start to have a conversation, um, about spending, um, much of it is in relation to the pandemic, but for the most part, I think that, uh, um, it's the pandemic has kind of thrown fiscal prudence out the window, um, for so many countries, uh, and for so many countries who weren't in a great position beforehand, um, whether they're developed countries like Canada or countries in the developing world. Um, so we'll see how much longer the pandemic officially rolls on and what the actual impact of this, let's say financially will be come the end of 2022. Cause I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. All right. So we've already Bob Barkered our uh, various <laughs> uh, guesses here. So we've locked them in. We've saved them on MP3. Uh, you guys can go back and uh, listen to our past episodes over there on consumerchoiceradio.com. Also, if you want the full podcasts and videos of our interviews. And uh, we, we've got some interviews that we'll announce a bit later. There's a lot yep. of stuff going on. David, let's go to, straight to the consumer corner. Let's talk about the economics of cars. Buying Ooh, a car, yes. the car markets. Yep. I know you have uh, recently dealt with this. I am currently in the process until I send the money of dealing with this again. <laughs> um, let's talk about, well, first off, uh, new car versus used car. I think that's important mm -hmm. for a lot of people, consumers. Uh, have you bought a new car? Is your car new now? Or have you only it bought is, used cars? No, it is new. Um, so up until 2014, I was purchasing used cars. Um but now for the last two vehicles, they have been new vehicles. Which... Okay, and that process is done mostly carried out at the dealership. Yep. Uh, what has been the main difference for you in between having that used car and then that new car? I'd assume it just, just... have to do with maintenance costs or something. Uh, yeah, maintenance costs, and really it's the warranty. So um, when I bought our, when we bought our new car, we essentially have like the full warranty. Um, so the best way to describe it would be if anything goes wrong with the exception of the windshield cracking or needing new brakes, the dealership will have to fix it under the warranty. So if 
one of the light goes out, the radio's not working, something in the electronics isn't working, the leather on a seat rips, I get a flat tire, something mechanical needs to get done, I need an oil change. All of those things are included um, in the warranty that was uh, even the oil the changes included. Even the oil changes, yeah, we got a. But that's full like seven routine years. maintenance. Uh, yeah, it is, but they 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 are able to throw that in um, as a plus, and so for me, it was a no brainer to go with the new vehicle. Although it's obviously more expensive, um, it was a no brainer to go with the new vehicle because yes, it's more expensive, but I know that unless I do something stupid and get into an accident that's at my fault, I have insurance for that, but there's a deductible. There's no, there's not going to be any surprise costs down the road. And I like that, um, that security and knowing like, Oh, well, if that goes wrong, I just take it to the dealership. Uh, if I get a flat tire, which is, I never knew that this even existed. I mean, getting a flat tire, you get it towed to the dealership. They got to fix it. Or they got to give you a new tire. Um, so that's the, that was very nice. That was part of the reason why we made that decision. And does the warranty come with the car purchase or is that an additional package that you so pay for? It was an additional package, but because I was a return customer, it was like half price because they honored it at like the previous rate that I bought like six, seven years ago. Okay. Um, and this is for the whole term of the financing of the car. So the whole seven years. So that means that like, while we're still paying for the car, there will not be any surprise costs. Cause that was the biggest thing when I was younger, early on in my career at university, that was the thing that was like the biggest setback all the time. Um, Cause I was driving old cars, used cars, these all of a sudden something would go and you'd take it to the mechanic and he'd be like, yeah, your, your dingle bop meter is broken. You got to, that's going to be a thousand bucks. And you're like, oh, I'm working at Wendy's for $11 an hour. Like that's like three months worth of work. How am I going to afford yeah. this? Huh? Yeah. I asked because, so we are about to purchase our second vehicle here. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've had many cars, um, mostly Volkswagen, right? I've been in the German family. And mm -hmm. uh, since, since I guess 2020, I've been on team Japan, Nissan. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, and, you know, we are upgrading from a 2015 to a 2017, everybody. Oh. And the used car, at least for me, I've only ever had used cars. Mm -hmm. I have been a bit brainwashed by my dad, who happens to be a mechanic. Yep. Uh, so for us, new car a bit out of the question. Obviously, the just the general markets and prices, things are always more expensive here in Europe, no matter what. Taxes mm -hmm. on cars are way higher gasoline yep. costs are way higher or benzene as they say so i think having a newer used car i mean come on looking at a 2017 still going to be worth it for me it was interesting going through the dealership uh and, and kind of doing it that way yeah uh, normally i've done it you know through craigslist or some of these websites where you just find it and the person selling their car and i think a lot of people use facebook marketplace nowadays too it is yeah i see everything on facebook marketplace yeah, there's a there's a pretty good pretty good uh, selection of cars there, and so basically we're just going back to that same dealership where we bought that car, uh, pretty cheap. We get a good trade in price, and then essentially the the cash that's needed for the upgrade isn't too much. It's manageable. Uh, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a lot of belt that tightening and all the rest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that to to being able to have a newer larger car when uh, babies come around. Yeah. But yeah, I can only imagine. 
what it's like in many places that really have not as many options. They're not able to find these cars. They're not able to necessarily get a lot of these uh, great benefits and discounts. I mean, that's that's one thing that I find interesting. And I think as you alluded to, at least for dealerships in North America, most of their money does not come from the sale of the car. It comes from the financing. It comes from, yeah. you know, these the repair programs, warranties, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and what's what's interesting is the big difference between this car and the last car is how much time you have to wait. Um, so it was a lo- much lo- longer wait. It was about four weeks um, for the car to arrive from Korea. And that's, for the most part, I think unheard of because usually it's – you buy it, they approve your finance and you drive it off the lot the next day. Um, but just because of chip shortages and supply chain issues, it's just not what it used to be. And so it took a lot longer this time around. Oh, that's interesting that you had it on the shipped from Korea. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, basically the, the dealer guy was like, well, there's uh, the car you want is we're in the middle of the Pacific right now. <laughs> so it's going to take about, three, four weeks to get here. I'm like, ah, okay, whatever. Uh, but they couldn't find the vehicle anywhere else in the province. Um, Cause usually the dealers will like trade with each other and they'll be like, okay, well I have a guy who wants this. So we'll trade you one of ours that are on the lot, let's say in a different color. Um, but that was impossible, which is also very rare. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a bit of a battle, but it worked out. Yeah. And we looked at getting into uh, various EVs, uh, the market here is fairly developed, so there are a mm-hmm. good amount of them. And uh, here, I, I don't know if it's like this in, in other places, but if you do have an electric vehicle, uh, they do ha- uh, give you a green license plate. So your mm-hmm. uh, your number turns green. They do that here. Okay, it yeah. allows for you to drive on in the HOV lane, the high occupancy lane, even if you're one person. Oh, okay, no, we don't have that. We do have the various uh, chargers, though, that are around the city. Uh, that people can use. They they still have to pay for it. There's like a little program. Uh, yeah. But those are everywhere, and uh, there are more and more, and actually that's taking up parking places for uh, gas guzzlers like mine, unfortunately. I, I, I saw a funny thing. I saw someone who did not have an electric vehicle, and they just popped their hood and threw the charger in the hood and, and like closed the hood as much as they could and walked away. <laughs> oh, that's parked, smart. And parked in one of the charger spots. Well, you can also convert, you know, the normal uh, gasoline cars to do that, but I know it's it's a very difficult process. At least that's what YouTube videos tell me. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds but, like man, quite this, the process. Uh, the, the car stuff is is really interesting, and and you know, I know that while we're talking about the fun part of owning a car and getting a car and driving around, there are various movements and governments that are trying to restrict personal car ownership, gas-powered mm-hmm. vehicles. We already talked about California and the plan to basically do away with all gas-powered vehicles, much the same in the European Union. You know, I just kind of have to wonder, what is it going to look like in about 50 years? You know, is it just that everyone's going to be forced to have an electric car and it'll be at a higher cost? Is it going to be that we'll have new technologies that can power these vehicles? You know, what what do you think that'll look like? Yeah, I, I think it'll probably probably be primarily electric, but the big thing is... If you don't have the infrastructure available, um, then you're putting the cart before the horse. And that's a huge worry for me is that like, yeah, I would have loved to have gotten an electric vehicle um, that I 
I'm pr- maybe we even would have preferred to get an electric vehicle. It just wasn't reasonable for us. Like in our parking structure, there's no like charging outlet in our parking spot. So we would have to park in visitors parking in one of the two EV charger spots for however we want, however long we wanted to charge, then move the car back every night. And if you forgot, you could get a ticket. It's like, it's just, it's not, yeah, gas prices suck, but it's just not feasible to add that type of issue into your, into your life. And then factor in like, where are the public stations? Like if I, if, I mean, that's really the convenience of gas is that if you're running low on gas, you, you type gas station on your Google maps and you're going to find one within the next five kilometers, pretty much wherever you go. Uh, in Southern Ontario, it's not the same for a charging station. Um, and the charging process takes a little longer. Um, so it's not just take maybe a five minute detour to fill your tank. It's maybe a much longer detour to charge your car if you can find a station. And so that's really like, we have to get to a point where as the technology advances, charging gets quicker uh, and it becomes more readily available in order for it to be something that people who like, if you put a lot of kilometers on your car, which we do, um, it might not be advantageous yet, but I mean, I'm hopeful that down the road, the technology will advance yeah, there's, to the point where it is. I'm oh, sure yeah, Elon Musk will figure and, it out. You know, there's so many things I'd love to say about the understated sociological benefits from the gas station as a great social place to hang out. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that a bit yes. more. Uh, going to break now, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on the radio waves and always available over on consumerchoiceradio.com. Uh, David, uh, before we before we let the audience go towards the end of the show, we got to be sure to plug our upcoming interviews Uh, But very quickly, I wanted to get your take on a a couple of articles, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. one that's fairly interesting. And it's a bit complex and complicated, but it has to do with your money and the banks. And Yes, okay, let's hear it. So we're September 2021. I am one of the uh, U.S. tax-paying citizens who has not yet received my tax tax report uh, from the IRS. Come on, Joe. Come on, Joe. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, the Biden administration has been asking for $80 billion more dollars for the IRS. And one thing that the, the IRS is doing is it's actually seeking additional authority to tap into the bank accounts of various Americans so that they can see what goes in and what goes out so that it is on a tally uh, ostensibly, they're looking at anything over $10,000, which in a way is not automated. So uh-huh. currently, if you guys have seen any of the robbery movies, <laughs> essentially, yeah, if, was... if people withdraw more than $10,000, the bank is required to fi- file a form and send that over to the IRS. Yeah. Now the IRS wants to have automatic uh, sort of an algorithm uh, that's plugged in for that. And uh, a lot of the banks, the banksters have been very critical of this plan, and I would agree. Uh, we we don't often talk about banking secrecy. I think often that conversation is thrown in with, you know, billionaires and tax shelters and all of the like. Uh, but no one really thinks about the privacy concerns of, you know, the, the money that's going. I mean, there are a lot of divorces that happen. There's a lot of, uh, 
questions about bank accounts, where money comes in and out and different types of income. You know, and, and we've kind of lost this conversation about banking privacy and whether we should have privacy when it comes to our bank accounts. And it's something that, whether we like it or not, the cryptocurrency revolution is kind of solving in its own way. Uh, but mm -hmm. what do you think about that? Because I know there are similar provisions, obviously, in Canada. Uh, the banking sector is, is more strictly regulated up there. But what do you think overall? I mean, it just seems kind of, uh, it seems like an overreach. And it seems like... I get the impression that it's it's nobody wants to say that they're going to have to increase taxes. And so they're going to try and do this stuff to find people who are maybe fudging the numbers on their taxes. But the thing is, is that I don't know what the number is in, in the U.S., but I got it. I bet you it's over 90 percent of tax filings uh, are automatically done when you get paid weekly, biweekly or monthly. Uh, so I know here the CRA takes their cut already in your paycheck and what you're left with is your after-tax income. So they're already, they've already automated that. Uh, and so if we're talking about a population where 90% are like traditionally employed, um, it just seems kind of silly that we would go this extra mile. Um, I mean, if you really need to generate revenue, just be honest and say, hey, we're going to increase taxes. This is what it's going to be. But <clears throat> nobody wants to face the music in terms of what that means in regards to an election. And that's really kind of the cowardice of our, our political system is that not many politicians have, the, even Bernie Sanders waffled and then eventually said, yeah, my tax plan would raise taxes on ordinary Americans. Yeah. But he seems to be the only one who has the guts to do that. And this is a common problem, whether you're in Canada or the United States. And now, while I'm not a fan of Bernie Sanders' tax plans or his economic view, um, at least he's honest about it. And so this just seems like a way where it's like, okay, well, we're not, we don't want to say we're going to increase taxes on the middle class. So what we'll do is we'll give the IRS more authority to try and skim off anyone who um, maybe has transactions that we could flag for tax purposes. So like an example would be you're selling a car, right? Someone sells a car on Facebook marketplace for $11,000. They set it up. They send the money. Someone writes them a check for the amount that, that, that tax amount is now flagged. Are they reporting that as income? Do you have to like, the same goes for anything else or you're, you're paying for a portion of a large expense with a check, like a wedding or whatever else you would, or maybe you're getting a gift from family. And it just seems like, oh boy, like that's going to add a whole lot of additional headaches to the already irritating process of paying taxes. Oh yeah. And one thing that, you know, a lot of people don't appreciate until you kind of have to go abroad and you start dealing with different, you know, regulatory agencies and countries and tax authorities and banks is just how much this legislation carries on. And, you know, one of my goals, <laughs> lifelong policy goals, if you had to say that, is to get rid of the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, aptly named FATCA, makes you think yeah. of fat cat, obviously, uh, basically a tw 2010 law, and it essentially requires any financial institution in the world to declare if they have U.S. citizens that have accounts 
Now, uh, I had a sounds all well I had and a good. Professor, yeah, go ahead. I had a professor who who um, revoked his U.S. citizenship, not entirely because of that, uh, but, but he was he was just tired of like he lived in Canada for a long time. He was officially a resident. He was a dual citizen, then a dual citizen. He's a professor, so he's making decent money. And the IRS would always come snooping around come tax time, basically be like, well, do you have any U.S. income? What do you owe us? And it's like nothing. I'm an employee at a Canadian public institution. I haven't lived in the U.S. for 10 years. Like, yes, I am a citizen. And they end up, they end up doing that and harassing Americans who live abroad who have no tax obligation to the United States in any way. Yeah. And, and where we've seen... The obvious negative externality of this is that when any U.S. citizen goes to open up a bank account uh, throughout the world, they have to declare that they are a U.S. citizen with the bank, and the banks who do not want to deal with such risk and additional filing of paperwork will just say no. And uh, there are a good number of expats that I know that aren't able to get bank accounts at all. They just have to maintain U.S. accounts and try to live their life um, in a foreign country using that where possible, and it's very difficult. And, you know, it just goes to show that they're trying to go after the fat cats and you end up hurting ordinary people. And I'm seeing this more and more with the banking secrecy laws that are being uh, sort of eviscerated. And, you know, even a place like Switzerland, everyone thinks, oh, you know, Swiss, Switzerland, they're so good with the money and you can hide it. And all. Well, they actually follow all the U.S. laws as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you can't just it's have you know, uh, Elon Musk go over there and open up a Swiss account and hide billions of dollars. Because technically, I guess, I, I think he also is a Canadian citizen, by the way. But he still has to, as a U.S. citizen, he still has to de declare and they have to tell the government that he's got money there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not good. It would be nice to see that, to see that go away. I mean, mo most of these people don't have any tax obligation to the u.s I, for, I don't know what the law is for canadians who who are like employed abroad no but, luckily um, for for canada that i know as well as long as it's income that's made domestically so it's uh yeah your, your taxation is based upon residency and not citizenship and uh, yep. the u.s joins uh, the nation of eritrea in being the only two practitioners of citizenship-based taxation um, and there's a lot is, of accidental americans this happens a lot uh, there's a big scandal. I don't know if you remember that, David, in Australia a few years ago. Uh, like basically, all these ministers turned out to be British or Irish citizens, or some were U.S. citizens because of their parents or their grandparents. Mm -hmm. And because of that, essentially, they were not eligible to be parliamentarians because of the way the law works there. Uh, but also, for those who were uh. found to be Americans, then the IRS started going after them. They're like, oh, well, you're a well-paid Australian minister uh, and a U.S. citizen. Looks like we're going to get a cut of your salary there. And it seems so strange because, right, taxes are to pay for stuff that people are using, but someone who is employed and is, let's say, a citizen by the birth of their mother or the birthplace of their mother or something like that, they're not, they don't use any, they don't live there, they don't use any of the public services. In some instances, maybe they never have. So again, it just seems like a cheap way of saying like, Hey, even though you don't live here and use our stuff, we still own you. We somebody's got to fund this military. If you're in trouble <laughs> yeah, and we no send point. the Navy SEALs, we got to pay them somehow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah. you know, and I know this sounds like it would only apply to foreigners and everything else, but 
you know, also if you have a spouse who happens to not have been born in the country, I mean, that complicates things. Also, if yep. you are a business owner and you employ various people that might be immigrants, that's also a concern. And yep. yeah, I, I think allowing more power to the IRS to snoop on the bank accounts and to have a direct line or a direct API where they get, you know, an algorithm update on what you're moving around in your in your bank account, especially considering parents, uh, you know, if they leave you anything, gifts, large purchases of cars, all this kind of stuff. I find that very, very problematic and troubling. And I think that is probably pushing a lot of people, um, not necessarily everybody, over to cryptocurrencies, over to Bitcoin, and uh, many of these other well, things, which we've, uh, we have talked about ad nauseum probably the last month. But this stuff ain't going to go away, folks. This is uh, yeah, with us to stay. It, that just reminds me of a conversation that I had with Andrew Yang years ago. Um, which what a, really what a casual me. way to drop that in. Yeah, weird flex, but okay. Um, so he, the, I, he was talking about the income tax and how there are diminishing returns the higher up you ratchet them and things like that. And I was like, well, would you get rid of the income tax in, explain, in, in exchange for just consumption taxes? And he was like, yeah, in a perfect world, I would, because the income tax punishes people for working and being successful. And I was like, oh, okay, this guy kind of gets it. Um, and it just kind of highlights that, like, you know, if you could now unraveling the tax code to just tax consumption would be incredibly diff difficult. But if you could restart and you just taxed consumption, you funded government through that, um, as opposed to taxing income that would probably be a much more uh, streamlined and effective way of ensuring that one revenue is captured um, and two doing it in a way that isn't going to have negative externalities. So you're in favor of more consumption taxes because normally the argument would be that uh, these type of um, taxes that are implemented also hurt working people because you, you are consuming various products, you know, you got to buy more baby products and you got to buy X or Y things. Yeah. But millionaires do. don't necessarily buy millions more diapers, right? They just might buy more expensive things. Yeah. There is, there are some logistical issues with inelasticity and realistically it would be probably not feasible to do because we've exempted so many of those things from sales tax or, or like the existing consumption taxes that exist or that are already around. Um, so it would be, it, I don't think it's feasible, but I think in, if you could create a scenario where you could start over and say, okay, this is what we're taxing to fund government at a rate of X percent um, with few exemptions or no exemptions, that would probably be the easier way and the more uh, prosperity focused way of doing it. But I will admit that it is riddled with, with issues. And the issue is beyond that is that a lot of politicians use value-added taxes in addition to income taxes. And that's a huge problem. So not only are we taxing the middle class and, and poor people on their income, we're then hitting them with additional consumption taxes on everyday goods. And that's something that I think is, is really, really problematic. But we do see that that's quite common. Yeah. Uh, calling you Scandinavia. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so David, uh, closing up our, our show here for... Uh, the week, uh, a lot of great stuff that we've covered in the past couple of weeks, and I know we've got some interviews planned. Uh, do you want to go ahead and preview one interview? Because uh, I, I know uh, yeah. it might be of interest to the listeners. 
Yeah, so you and I have talked about Afghanistan. We've had guests on the show in regards to Afghanistan. And I'm very happy to announce that for next week's program, uh, we will have the former Afghan Minister of Mining and Petroleum, Nargis Nihan, uh, on the show, uh, coming to us from her safe refuge in Norway. Um, so very excited to chat with her. Luckily, she was able to leave uh, Afghanistan before the Taliban uh, retook the capital. Um, and so stay tuned for that. If you want to hear a firsthand account about what has happened in Afghanistan and what the situation really looks like, she's probably the best person we could chat with on that. Beautiful. Much more to come there. Other interviews. Great stuff. That's Consumer Choice Radio. David, talk to you next week. Till next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
the United States of America is healed and well again. Say it. Hallelujah. Glory. 